1: Hey everybody, uh, I'm actually recording this after the show completed. Uh, I apologize in advance. There are these beeps uh, that come out of uh, Professor Sunstein's computer. We've tried to mitigate them, reduce them. Uh, we uh, we stopped everything and um, uh, broke into study groups trying to solve the problem, we couldn't do it. Uh, so it's a little bit of a distraction, but I figured if you know it's coming, it'll be less annoying. Than, unless noisy, as it were, uh, than if you uh, um, were just taken by surprise by it. So apologies for that. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Hey! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited about today's return guest. Um, he is, I think it is fair to say, if you're actually going to do one of those meta-analyses about citations and references and, and publications, he has got to be in the 0.1% of top public intellectuals of the last couple decades. Um, I am not going to read you the list of all the books that he has written or co-written because, uh, we don't have that much time. Uh, but, uh, Cass Sunstein, who is a professor at Harvard law school, um, the author of many books, including, um, his latest, which we're going to be talking about today, uh, noise, a flaw in human judgment, which he co-wrote with, uh, and I'll, uh, with Daniel Kahneman and, um, Olivier Siboni, And if I mispronounce that, I'll be corrected shortly. And I should also note that when I was doing show prep, I realized I had missed this news, but, uh, Cass Sunstein actually works, has taken a job, uh, in, he's still teaching at Harvard, but he's also taken a job, uh, at DHS in the Biden administration dealing with Im- immigration stuff. But part of his rules is he's not it, I did not know this. He was not booked to bring on here about immigration. Love to grill him about the immigration stuff. But uh, that is not part of, talking about this stuff publicly as a spokesman for the administration is not part of his portfolio. And I asked him to, to come on to talk about the book and related things and probably dogs. Um, so there is not some great conspiracy or cover up here about why I refuse to ask him about the immigration stuff. It's just sort of the ground rules of the conversation. And it's not his fault. And it's not mine. And um, stop complaining about it. Um, all right, so uh, Cass, welcome, welcome back to the Remnant. Great to have you.
0: Great thrill to be here, and you might hear a dog barking in the background because he recognizes your voice and he's just very excited <laughs> to hear you.
1: Now, I was pretty sure you have golden retrievers.
0: Uh, close Labrador retrievers. Okay, they're, they're retrievers and they're kind of golden, but they're Labrador.
1: But he that does not sound like a Labrador bark. That sounds like a higher pitch, smaller dog bark. Well, Maybe it's just a distortion here.
0: He's, he's very, um, agile intellectually. And so he <laughs> sometimes feels he wants the kind of attention a little dog would get that he, I a little dog.
1: Um, well played. Okay. So, um, uh, rather than, we should tell people that like, I, I don't know about Olivier Saboni, but like Daniel Kahneman is, Kahneman is, uh, one of the premier psycho, psychologist or psychiatrist. I can't remember. Psychologists. Psychologists. Yeah. In the world. He's written some wonderful stuff that I've read. Um, and we'll just stipulate that all the greatest insights, because I know you like false modesty, all the greatest insights in this book are from your co-authors, and you don't have to keep saying things like that. <laughs> um, um, but why don't you just sort of explain what noise is and how it just, it's different than bias?
0: Okay. So noise is variability in judgment. So if you have a scale in the morning that always shows you is five pounds heavier than you are, that's my scale, by the way, that's a, a bias scale. It's a cruel scale because it shows you, gives you bad news systematically. It's biased. And you might imagine like a judge who would be biased. Maybe the judge really likes uh, criminal defendants and always gives them a shorter sentence they, they deserve. Or maybe a doctor is just very reluctant to test people for heart disease and is biased in favor of saying, go home and take an aspirin. Noise is variability in judgment. So if you have a scale that shows you as a little heavier than you actually are on Monday and Tuesday, but a little lighter than you actually are the rest of the week, that is a noisy scale. It's not cruel, it's just mischievous. If you have a doctor or hospital who is testing people a lot in the morning when they're energetic and ready to go and testing people very little in the afternoon or maybe on Friday and Thursday when they're tired and they've done enough, that's a noisy doctor or hospital. If you have a legal system which is variable in the criminal sentence it provides people so that if you've done something wrong, you're then faced with a lottery depending on either what judge you get, whether it's someone who's harsh or someone who's lenient or depending on the judge's mood, that would mean maybe the judge is happy because uh, it's a Georgia football fan and Georgia won a big game. Then the judge would say, okay, light sentence. But if they're a TCU fan and TCU lost and got crushed, they might be really upset and mad. And actually there's data supportive of what I'm saying that the, the that the performance of a preferred sports team affects judicial behavior, then there's, uh, there's noisy judging. And it, while bias is kind of charismatic, if we find bias, I'm not talking about racial or gender bias, by the way. I'm talking about a bias meaning a tendency to make a mistake in a systematic direction. That's kind of charismatic and exciting. It's got a lot of attention. Uh, noise is a little like the character in the Hitchcock movie, or the Dark Mirror episode, who's actually responsible for all the horror. And you only discover that in the last scene.
1: Um, I want to come back to that. Um uh it was so you when you say there's a lot of evidence for this, I mean you run through a bunch of it in the book. Uh in his slow thinking book, he, there was a lot of examples of that as well. I remember, you know, judges who are um like the there's a tendency to give uh I think it's stricter, harsher, more uh, rapid judgments when it's time for lunch (laughs) Um, by judges. I mean, there's all these kinds of things. And um, um, so why don't you, since you're more familiar with all this stuff, why don't you give some, to to sort of flesh it out, just some examples of what, um, you know, let's pernicious noise rather than just simply, because I mean, some noise is life, right? I mean, that's just... The way, you know, screws fall, it's an imperfect world, but uh, systemic noise in like criminal justice system or medicine, people can understand that this is a problem that's worth dealing with.
0: Okay, so let's suppose someone is convicted of shoplifting or fraud. We would want, I think, the sentence to be relatively stable across different judges and across different moods that judges have. But they aren't relatively stable. They're highly variable. So you can get, if you've done something wrong, probation from one judge, potentially, and three years in jail from another judge. We've done things called noise audits, which can be in experimental settings where you just ask people, what would you do? Or you just look at actual behavior. And it turns out criminal sentencing is really noisy. And that's unfair, and it's also from the standpoint of you know having a sensible criminal justice system. It's not good because you will over deter, over punish certain people, and under deter and under punish other people. If you go to a hospital with a condition that might be heart disease, or might be cancer, or might be endometriosis, you will find that there's shocking variability in what diagnosis and treatment people give. It's not like random. It's not like if you ask me if someone had endometriosis, my first question would be, what's endometriosis? And my second question would be, how the heck do I know? And if you made me choose, I'd have random judgments. Doctors are much better than that. But they're much less good than we would like in the sense that they are highly variable. And that means that patients in a city where there are plenty of good doctors end up having a lottery and the stakes might be really high. It might mean that they're going to have some terrible thing happen because the doctor is not testing enough or they're going to be tested like crazy because the doctor is a testing kind of a guy. And we know that for heart disease diagnosis, actually, uh, There's a lot of noise there, and that is costing the medical system a lot, and it's also um, leading to bad outcomes for people. If we didn't have noise, we would save a lot of money and have much better outcomes for people. We know that if people are in a child custody situation or whether a kid's going to be taken away, because of child welfare issues. Uh, I planted that little noise right there just to make sure that people know what kind of noise we're talking about. Not that noise, variability noise. We know whether kids are going to be taken away from the family. It's really noisy. Mm -hmm. A lot of it depends on who's chosen, and that is unfair, and it will lead to inaccuracy. So bias kind of shouts out at you that if someone is, you know, very prone to take kids away from their family, even if the family's not so terrible, that's a biased, anti-intact family person. That's not good. If we see variability in the system, people tend to have question marks in their mind. But it means that kids will be separated from their family who ought to stay and kids won't be separated from their family in circumstances in which the, the, they really ought to be for their well-being. We know, and this startled me in doing the book, uh, that fingerprint testing and DNA testing have a significant amount of noise in them. Mm. We might think that DNA testing and fingerprint testing, surely those are going to be you know stable. But they aren't. They're not crazy unstable. It's not like, not like random. But there is variability across DNA tests and across fingerprint tests in terms of whether you find a match for fingerprint, and that's not good for the criminal justice system. So our basic conclusion after a multi-year uh, effort was: wherever there's judgment, there's noise, and more than you think.
1: So I mean, a, a couple couple thoughts before we figure out how to turn down the noise. Um... First of all, uh, I want to be very clear. This is mostly a devil's advocate point, not a something I'm actually endorsing, but like the noise in the medical system stuff, there's really no upside to it, right? Whatsoever. There is an upside, which I do not endorse (laughs) in the criminal justice system in the sense that, um, you know, I think about my dad who used to, his, one of his best arguments for not doing something stupid was sure you might be able to get away with it, but there's a non-trivial chance that a really bad case scenario will show up. And, um, as you probably know better than I, you know, the, the, in criminology, there's a very powerful argument that severity of, of punishment is much less important than certainty of punishment, that if you actually know there will be a price, even if it's a smaller price than law and order types would like, um, uh, that will have a better impact on crime rates than people just, uh, thinking they can get away with it 10 times and then the 11th time they'll get caught. And, um, so, you know, the idea that there's this huge swing of possibilities for some people, you. You know, like the prospect of playing Russian roulette with your life in criminal justice, there's an upside in a, in a certain sense to that, uh, that, that sort of, uh, you know, the possibility that you could draw just the worst possible judge who just had, you know, whose team just lost the Super Bowl, um, you know, which is the kind of counseling that you lawyers give clients all the time, right? Is like, you know, I'm not saying this will happen, but you should be prepared for the fact that things could go really askew on you or, or awry on you. Um, But then the second point, I mean, and feel free to push back on that, but then the second point is, it seems to me that one of the biggest societal problems stemming from noise, so there's the problem of the noise itself, right, and what that means for the medical system or the criminal justice system or whatever, but there's also the problem is that because we are pattern-seeking creatures we want to ascribe intentionality so we want we we, when we see noise we want it to be bias and that has all sorts of uh social cohesion problems to it you know i mean i'm very sympathetic to the old arguments about institutional racism where because none of the people in the institution today um are intentionally racist, but you can still get racist, racial outcomes because of past systems i 'm very sympathetic to that argument in certain circumstances and that kind of thing but it 's also possible that some of the racial outcomes are actually noise and not bias and no one, there's no there 's very little stakeholder very few stakeholders who who, who want to say it 's just noise. There are a lot of stakeholders who want to say everything bad is bias
0: completely so these are both great points uh. Uh, Let's take them in reverse order. So you're making a deep point that people are pattern seeking creatures. So if we see an outcome, this is connected with, let's say, false conspiracy theories. Also, we often want to say this caused that. And if it's Plausible, there's a kind of aha in the brain, which is extremely pleasing, even if this is really awful and so is the that. So, if you see an outcome that was caused by, let's say, um, I'll give two biases: one provocative, one not so provocative, that people are unrealistically optimistic. That's actually true; Uh, most people are, Um, and that unrealistic optimism caused, let's say, a budget projection by. A government to go awry, then there's a thought: we got a problem, and that's it. Uh, the more provocative one was, let's say, it's uh, race discrimination, and then we have an aha. It might be, uh, in some sense, horrifying. It might be, in some sense, pleasing because it fits with what we think we know, and. That is how the human mind works. If it turns out, I'm agreeing with you here, that the reason the budget projection went awry was it's just noisy. Economists are noisy. They are in several different ways. I love them, but they sometimes talk loudly, and they often are noisy in the sense of variable. And if we see variability across economists with respect to um, budget projections, we might just think, well, that's... That's like randomness. It's like looking in the sky and seeing stars and they don't form a pattern. We might, might say, no, they actually do. It's the Big Dipper or something. We Look for Big Dippers. So I think you're completely right, which is why uh, noise neglect is omnipresent. And uh, one reason we we're just excited about the project, that the world is really noisy. And that suggests that causal explanations are sometimes speculative and false. On um, the criminal justice system, I think you're, into, you're completely right. So let's just talk a little bit more about it. It suggests there might be a, a, a case from the standpoint for deterrence uh, for noise. So you might have a legal system where the chance of being caught and punished is 100% and the punishment isn't that severe, or the chance of being caught and punished is 10% and the punishment is really severe. Now, whether the second will create as much deterrent as the first or less or more depends on the relevant population. If you have an optimistic risk-seeking population, then certainty of punishment is much more important than severity. If you have a a scared, risk-averse population, then the second might be more effective in creating deterrence than the first. And so we need to know what kind of people we're dealing with to know which which is better. There's a Nobel Prize winning economist, Gary Becker, who said that in a famous paper that it's just the same. It depends on the expected value of the punishment, Uh, but that's probably not true. That's not how human beings are. So it's possible that if you have a noisy system where some judges are severe, some judges are lenient, the prospect of encountering the severe judge Uh, creates the right deterrent signal. So that that is possible. But if we were devising a legal system in the first instance, trying to create a lot of deterrence, let's say, probably our first best way of doing that would not have a lottery with respect to what judge you encounter. It might be that it's our fourth choice or fifth choice, and we don't have the first three or four. So we go for it. But there's a downside. And because the population of judges is not readily visible, that is with respect to their sentencing choices, it would be really lucky if all were for the best in this best best of all possible worlds.
1: So how do you, I mean, methodologically or philosophically, how do you filter out the noise in your own analysis of this stuff, by which I mean, um, again, you you know all this stuff better than I do, but like uh, you can have two 23-year-olds both charged with shoplifting, one in Cleveland and one in New York, and the stuff that makes it into the paperwork makes them seem identical. But then there could be, I'm not sure what they are, but there could be all sorts of, I don't know, extraneous external epiphenomenal whatever kind of factors that the judge is taking into account from things that should make us nervous like race or whatever to body language to uh you know whether or not there were family members in the court so you kind of got a sense that this guy had a support network to whatever i mean but there there have to be all sorts of unknown unknowns that don't get translated into data that could uh, actually explain that they could explain that some of this noise may not in fact be noise. Like, how do you figure that stuff out?
0: So let's sneak up on that by disclosing the origins of this book. It was work that uh, Kahneman particularly did with a large insurance company in which he was interested in whether the underwriters were noisy. What kinds of premiums would they charge people? And what he did was gave them cases where people wanted to be customers and said, here's our risk. What's the premium? And across underwriters at a very profitable, very large company, there was a crazy amount of noise. Like some underwriters would say an amount that was a fifth of what the other underwriters would say. Now, Kahneman himself was intrigued, but not shocked by that finding. He expected there would be noise. What surprised him was he asked the people who ran the company, "Um, how much noise do you think you'd find? And they didn't expect anything like what they found. They expected about a fifth of the noise. Notice that the noise audit I'm now describing for insurance company, it's very clean. Uh, There aren't any unobserved variables. And exactly the same thing has been done for judges, where on multiple occasions people are told, here's a case, here are the features of the defendant, Um, here are the features of the crime, here are the circumstances, family and other circumstances, what sentence would you give? And it's very clean. There's nothing that is uh, in the case that's unobserved. And there, the level of disparity is massive. Um, In in the real world, it's very hard to control for these things. But people have done the best they could. It's, you know, how is X treated and Y treated when X and Y look the same? And the disparities are so big, it would be surprising if there was something in the case that justified that differential treatment.
1: So is there... um is there much cultural uh, variant? Is there much variance between different cultures when it comes to noise? Are there some societies, or some? So, I mean, obviously, there are some systems that are more noisy than other systems. That's the whole point of the book. But like, is uh, is there much variability between different countries when it comes to things like noise?
0: I think of noise as, in some ways, an unexplored continent of understanding human endeavor so we have a lot of work on biases and whether biases are variable across cultures and there are some differences we know about Uh, with noise the investigation of it is relatively new now some statisticians are going to uh, be very unhappy with that statement because statisticians do study noise, and there's a lot of work where statisticians and medical professionals uh, try to measure the amount of noise both within doctors, across situations, and across doctors with respect to any number of things, including, by the way, psychological, mental health issues, where the system is really noisy, crazy noisy. And there are statistical measures of that. But your great question whether, let's say, psychiatrists or mental health professionals in France are noisier than those in Italy or the United States, we just don't know the answer to that. And whether the criminal justice system in Saudi Arabia is noisier than the criminal justice system in the United States, we don't know the answer to that either. Uh, I have a prediction, by the way, but uh, it might just depend on, um, you know, background knowledge of the countries, which may or may not be reliable.
1: And the, your prediction is, and are you keeping it a secret?
0: I would I would expect to find a ton of noise in Saudi Arabia with respect to criminal punishment. And we have a lot in the United States too, but I'd expect that it would be uh, a lot lower
1: than Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so... Uh- the reason I, I, I'm not struggling with this because I, I I think the noise thing is real and I think the book is fascinating and the and the the data is fascinating, but for some reason I keep thinking back like uh, I I had a meeting with a very prominent Silicon Valley tech guy once and uh he would hate if I revealed his name and um we were talking about this is sort of um at the I guess it was right before the pandemic but we were talking about how Zoom stuff really doesn't quite work in the same way as face-to-face meetings. And he'd spent a lot of time looking at this and he says, yeah, no, there are people who really think that, you know, there are all sorts of micro tells that uh, in facial expression that are, you know, cause our brains are, there's something I always try to explain to people is like, our brains are actually much better wired to read faces than to read books. <laughs> and, um, um, and our speech centers are much newer than our facial recognition centers and which is why it's so difficult to explain why two movie stars who basically look alike uh but you can't really explain (laughs) what how the the differences between them because our speech centers aren't as sophisticated as our our face facial recognition centers and I, I think that 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 comes across in, in things like what we're doing now, talking over computers. And then there's the question of how about pheromones and all sorts of things that we might admit that are all working on a sub rational, subconscious level. And it, make, it does make me wonder that if you start, when you start pulling on the thread of noise, you might start discovering a whole, as you put it, an undiscovered country we might discover an undiscovered country of biases that are in fact look like noise because we don't know about these other tells that are kind of invisible to us right now that actually set us off in strange ways.
0: Okay, let's, let's talk about that. So if you have, that's great. So, so let's suppose you have a shared bias so that everyone at a firm is optimistic. And that means they're going to agree that we should start a new project in circumstances in which if you really figured it out, you wouldn't do it. It's too risky. That would be a biased but not noisy firm. Or let's suppose you have a bunch of people who are concerned about 2023 and in their investment choices and 2024 and 2025 are a foreign country, later land, and they don't care whether they're ever gonna visit. They will all be present biased and it won't be noisy. So a shared bias will produce terribleness, but not noise. Um, Now in bail decisions, whether people should be given bail, it turns out that algorithms outperform human judges. One reason is algorithms aren't noisy. And when I say they outperform human judges, what I mean is if we use algorithms rather than human judges, we could keep the prison population constant and reduce crime a lot, or we could keep the crime rate constant and reduce the prison population a lot. The algorithm just makes better calls about whether people are going to commit crimes. Now, why are the human judges um, worse than the algorithm? There's one thing that kind of shouts out from the data, and forgive me, I'm going to get very excited as I describe this. One thing that shouts out from the data is that judges overweight the current offense. So if you if you have someone who is very um, good in their lives but they did something terrible, let's say they hit someone in the nose, the judge will say no bail. And the algorithm will say, don't worry about it. This person is not going to do anything bad. But if the person did something not so bad, let's say shoplifting, but has a terrible background, the algorithm will say, "Say you don't get bail, and the judge is more likely to say that. So call it current offense bias. That kind of leaps out from the data that the judges are both noisy, but also biased in that way. Now, here's the exciting thing. There's been work in the last months trying to penetrate the data a little bit better and trying to get the algorithm to talk to us about what it does well that the human beings don't do well. And you might think that the algorithm is more racially fair than the judges. That doesn't seem to be what's going on, or the algorithm doesn't have some signal that human beings are, in, are too alert to, and that's a bias that human beings have. Here's the what the algorithm uncovers. The judges overwrite the mugshot. If you have uh, someone who has a clean face, the judge will be very attentive to that, and the algorithm gives it much less weight. If someone's all messy, they're don't have a lot of hair but if their hair's all over the place etc um they will the judges will be less likely to give bail and so it's mugshot bias and mugshot bias produces systematic error but it also produces a degree of noise because some judges are more mugshot biased than others and uh, you know the our book isn't Hooray for algorithms but we like the fact that algorithms are noisy, and I like the fact that algorithms can help us uncover the sources of both bias and noise.
1: So this is—I mean—I want to get to the algorithm stuff in a second. But the 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 mugshot bias is a great example of how a bias in our, in our natural evolutionary environment um, had let's just be clear there were probably a lot of unfair results of this bias you know back on the 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 in the in the in the in in caveman times but um it was a heuristic that was actually there's a reason why we have biases towards clean faces and um um because these were subtle ways of communicating that someone might have a disease and fear of disease in pre- vaccine times and all of that kind of thing was, you know, a really important way of trying to stay alive. Um, so like how many of these, how much of this noise do you think can be attributable to what were once that are essentially evolutionary evol- uh, evolved, um, heuristic devices that are no longer useful in a modern environment?
0: Okay, so for biases, I think it's plausible to say a lot. So if people are optimistically biased, there's a good evolutionary account for that. If you think you're going to escape the tiger, then you're more likely to escape the tiger. If you think it's doomed, then forget about it. Uh, People show something called planning by plan the planning fallacy which is a form of optimistic bias they think projects will take less long than they'll actually take but that probably is evolutionarily or even now associated with at least getting the project done think it's going to be done in march it won't be but your thought that it's going to be done in march might help you get it done in may that's optimistic bias present bias which is robust people focus on the short term more than the long term they have very high discount rates typically that's okay evolutionarily if you're running away from a creature who's trying to kill you you ought to go really fast and not think what's going to happen in 20 years if my legs are tired from all that running i did so the focus on the short term has a good evolutionary explanation. I think you can say this for, at least there's a plausible account for every bias. Uh, Loss aversion, people hate losses. They like corresponding gains less, they like them less than they dislike losses. So if you lose $500, that really hurts. If you get $500, that's good, but it doesn't hurt as much as it doesn't please you as much as losing $500 uh, displeases you, typically. And that has an evolutionary explanation also. If you're at the edge of subsistence and you lose something, you might die. And you better avoid losses. Um, Biases, I think, are explain plausibly, I won't say more than that, but plausibly explainable as evolutionarily good. And uh, that seems reasonable. Noise, mind you, is variability. One of the cool things about noise is we needn't know the source of it to know that it exists. So if in a hospital you see doctors all over the place with respect to how to treat, let's say, your sister who goes in, you don't know why. Chances are that there's an unshared bias that's accounting for it. And asking for second opinions is often a way of trying to counter unshared bias. Um, But you don't know why. Bias, you will frequently know why, or certainly you will be eager to know why. Noise, you might think, what on earth is happening in that system? We observe bias, you know, and I'm not talking about racial or gender bias, I'm talking about cognitive biases uh, in life. You might have a friend who is, let's say, making bad risk assessments because something terrible happened to their best friend. They think it's gonna happen to me too, but there's no particular reason to think that's true. It's called availability bias. We observe that. If we observe someone who's, um, let's say, very eager to make a change in her career, the first half of 2023, and very uneager to do that in the second half of 2023, we might just think, well, I don't understand that very much. It's noise.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I take your point. It's a, it's an important point to keep in mind is that almost as a matter of logic, noise has to be attributable to a bunch of different things to be noise, right? If it's, if there's only one explanation for all the noise, then it's probably actually bias. But if there's, you know, for some people, it's, it's, they woke up cranky or they didn't have lunch and some people it's their sports team and, you add up all these little things, and that's what makes it noise is that it's that that's what gives it the variability I guess okay, can I give you two, a little exercise
0: that we did uh, the the co-authors of this book did and you anyone can play uh suppose you take let's suppose a person whom you know well and who who your partner or your best friend knows well, and rank them on a scale of one to ten with respect to let's say. Uh, kindness, diligence, and intelligence. Uh, My prediction is that even if it's someone who you and your partner, best friend know really well, your rankings aren't going to be the same. I've done this with my wife, and it's fun and stunning that we're noisy with respect to someone we know really well. She will say seven on kindness, and I will say four on kindness. Now, what's going on there? And and the question, what's going on there, is related to your point about bias. It might be bias. It might be that she is just very uh, generous in her ranking of people with respect to kindness, but very tough with respect to intelligence. Or it might be that the points on the scale have different meaning for her than for me. Or it might be that she's just really happy when we're doing the ranking exercise, and uh, I just found out that uh, my dog has to go to the vet this afternoon. So you, you, with this little experiment, you can see noise in action, and whether it's bias or something else, and the, the world of bias is so capacious, that's the right term for some of these things, it isn't entirely clear.
1: Right, because the noise can be attributable to some people's biases and to some other people's non-biases, but you know, systemically, I, I, I really want to get to the AI stuff in a second, but I have to ask, um, you are, um, I think it's fair to say, a centrist, left of center, democratic universe kind of guy, but um, you're also um, fully aware and cognizant that markets are a good thing um, or can be a good thing, right? Um it seems to me that markets, um, acknowledge the existence of noise, um, and, uh, you know, it's like markets acknowledging the existence of noise, um, by finding basically the equilibrium, the price that is, is essentially the product of an incredibly noisy phenomenon. Uh, you know, like, no person bidding on one side or the other in the stock market may have the correct price, but the, the wisdom of crowds yields one. And, um, and it seems to me that you, that's one of the difficulties with bureaucratic systems is you just don't have enough actors in it. Do so. I, I, is it fair to say that, you know, markets are good at acknowledging, but also filtering out noise in a way that other systems aren't?
0: Great question. So you and I, unless you've changed your views in recent months, are both great fans of markets and Hayek. And uh, I, I subscribe to that enthusiasm. And Hayek's essay, The Use of Knowledge in Society, is one of the great contributions to understanding that we have. And it says that planners won't know what markets do because markets can aggregate dispersed knowledge. Okay, so uh, noise we define, and this is just to uh, specify our terrain as unwanted variability in judgment. So if there's a customer service department at a computer company, where some people would say, when you have a problem, I'll give you a new laptop. And then other people will say, I'm sorry, stuff happens. And then others will say, we'll give you a $50 gift certificate. And that's unwanted variability. It would be really unlikely that a company would be pleased. And it's likely the company would lose a lot of money because it's giving away a lot of laptops and it's also agitating a lot of customers. So take that as a defining case of what we're concerned about, or well, we're not focusing on immigration here, if you have an asylum system in, let's say, Germany, where whether someone gets asylum depends on the person before whom they appear who will give asylum to everybody, then there's another person in Germany who will give asylum to nobody. It would be hard to think that that would be a good thing. Okay, so that's, that's the basic terrain. Noise understood as diversity of tastes and judgments is a different thing. And in a firm or in a nation, to have a lot of pluralism can be essential or good or, or something. And in markets, it's necessary to get them going. And the fact that some people really love Rockport shoes... And some people, I count myself, I'm not beholden to Rockport in any of their shoes. Um, and some people, shockingly, don't like Rockport shoes is a, a fact of diversity of tastes and values. And that is reflected in market outcomes. And that's great. So the, the market price of Rockport shoes will reflect the distribution of views, which are noisy in the sense of variable but that's uh, a good thing that humanity has diverse tastes. It's not like it'll produce costs or unfairness.
1: So the reason why this came to mind is when you were describing this game of writing, of ranking people you both know um, and seeing the noise in the, in, the, in the results, it reminded me of, I believe it was Francis Galton who invented this, right? But this, the, you know, it's, it's done, I'm sure you probably have done it in your classes the jelly bean thing where you have a jar of jelly beans um, and you ask a class to all write down on a piece of paper their guess of how many jelly beans are in it. Some kid might get the right guess, right? Or get very close. But uh, if you do, or if you repeat the experiment, that kid will probably be far off because they were just, those was a lucky guess. Meanwhile, the average of all of the guesses is consistently really, really close to the actual number of jelly beans in the jar. And that's the, that's the whole idea of the wisdom of crowds thing, is that markets by aggregating and taking an average of of the, the underestimations and the overestimations, which all things being equal are gonna be distributed relatively like a bell curve. If you take the average of them all, you get pretty close to the, the correct thing. And so it seems to me that that I am not one of these people contrary to, uh, uh, market haters of the left and the right these days who thinks markets are great for everything. But it does seem to me, given your point about how systems are fallible when they have these choke points of individual decision making, which can be very noisy that where possible to subject thing, to, to, to make decisions subject to some sort of market mechanism is better than making it, subject to what you know edmund burke would call the ar- the arbitrary power of an individual decision maker
0: completely agree so um if you're asking let's say what should the price of a new iphone be uh to have some sort of market assessment is a really good idea and if uh, a company gets that wrong it's either not going to sell the the phones or it's going to leave money on the table because it sells them too low. And so that's, that's great. And that's part of the engine of economic growth. Uh, in institutions that can't do that, let's say it's a university deciding what they should do about something, or a doctor deciding how to treat a patient who has a challenging condition, or a lawyer deciding whether to bring suit in a tort case let's say in which the answer isn't obvious to aggregate diverse judgments is a terrific idea it's the, it's not as good in many ways as markets because it doesn't it's not as precise but but it it's better and it's really interesting to think why it's better So hospitals sometimes as a matter of routine are asking for second opinions now and patients are learned that that's often a very good idea and it's sometimes discombobulating for patients to find the second opinion is radically different from the first, but that's instructive and to get three or four or five or six judgments is uh, often a really good thing to do in governments, in bureaucracies as a way of aggregating. Now, the question is, and you want to aggregate independent judgments, you don't want to get them distorted by going to a second lawyer and saying, your partner thinks we should sue, what do you think? Then you won't get the independent judgment. Why is it good to aggregate judgments? Okay, I think the, the less intuitive reason and I confess of the three authors of this book, I struggle most to get clear in my own head about this. For uh, Kahneman and Siboney, it's, it's easy. They, for them, statistics is more natural. Uh, it, one reason is it just eliminates noise or reduces significantly noise. So a group of six is going to be less noisy than, than one. Just the aggregation is going to be less noisy. Any group of six is less likely to diverge from a similar group of six than any one person is likely to diverge from another person. And if you reduce noise, you will cut error just by virtue of noise reduction. That's the, I think, not humanly intuitive point, but it's true. And it can be demonstrated by some math. And if you get rid of noise, you reduce error. But it's also the case that at least under favorable conditions, which are delightfully common, uh, uh, an aggregation will cut bias. So if there's bias one way, it might be on the part of one person, but the other five won't be, or one will be biased one way, one will be biased the other way. So you can tell this with uh, how many beans are there in a jar. Uh, There'll be biases on both sides, and the aggregation will eliminate it which is why for polls, uh, some of the smart people take polls of polls, they aggregate them, and for uh, economic projections, it's standard now to aggregate diverse ones, and that cuts the noise. That's the not intuitive but really important advantage of aggregating, and it also uh, counteracts bias.
1: I'm sure you agree with this, but I just think it's sort of an important thing to point out. I remember Charles Krauthammer was the first person to point this out to me that increased income correlates with increased health for a very long time until you reach a point of such wealth that you can buy the diagnoses that you want. <laughs> and, and so he, he talked about like Steve Jobs. Uh, he got a lot of opinions until he heard the opinion that he wanted to hear and went with that, right? Or you look at Michael Jackson, he went and found a doctor that would prescribe, you know, drugs that you shouldn't be prescribed. It works if you're getting other opinions, and you're weighing them all against each other. It's another thing to just sort of keep buying the lottery ticket until you hear someone say, yeah, you don't need a a liver transplant, you can just eat more kale, and you'll be fine. And, um, and you want that to be true, because you don't want a liver transplant, but that's actually wrong, right? And so it's, it's, It's the aggregating of these things and the weighing the evidence between the different opinions that matters, not just keep pulling the, you know, hitting the bar on the on the experiment until you get the result that you want.
0: Completely. I'll tell you a story where I had a personal experience with this. So under President Obama, my job was uh, my ultimate job was Senate confirmed. And before I was confirmed by the Senate, I worked as an advisor for a number of months After I was confirmed by the Senate, I had a staff of about 50 people, really excellent people, and uh, suddenly my view was authoritative. I was the boss after I was Senate confirmed, and I noticed on my first day when asked what we should do, I would say something, and they would nod, and maybe one of them would say, that's great. And there'd be a thought bubble that no one could see over my head saying, I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. The word might have been a four-letter word that wasn't heck. And when I said what I thought, it was really meant as an invitation for discussion, not as a conclusion. And so I learned that of the 50 people there was dispersed wisdom now, they were politically, you know, I had no idea and politically really diverse, but let's bracket that they had views on technical issues that were uh, informed and based on experience and training. And so I learned that I didn't want anyone to be telling me I was right. I wanted them all to say what they thought was right and then we could aggregate, maybe and certainly discuss and if fifty people thought something was right, and I thought otherwise, chances were not in my favor
1: yeah, i mean this is i mean this gets to a point I've been talking about for a long time is that I think every government institution of any 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 committee that is meeting to figure out what government public policy should be needs at least one libertarian in the room to ask the question, should we be doing anything at all? Now, sometimes the answer will be yes, obviously. But if you can't, like, but if you're the kind of person who just automatically thinks that's a stupid question, you have the bad priors. You need to ask, you know, you you need to go through the steps again. And this is why, I mean, I, I don't think libertarians are stupid, but, like, there's a really, there's some great stuff in the sort of wisdom of crowds literature about how Groups of very smart people with one dumb person in the group are collectively much smarter than groups with all smart people because the dumb person can be like Tom Hanks in Big, saying, I don't get it. And it yields better critical thinking. It yields introspection. People go over their missed steps to explain why they're doing something. And um, and that's why, like. Sometimes we don't need to get into climate change and all of those sorts of things, but sometimes when I hear the stuff about settled science, about this, that, or the other thing, I always just, simp- I, I worry how much groupthink is going on if there's not somebody in the room to say, you're all wrong, you know, someone like the Israelis, the 10th man thing, just to simply elicit better um, due diligence.
0: That's fantastic. It reminds me, there's someone who worked in the Obama administration at a high level, whom the president, whether you like him or not, I think you should like this about him. He called the person up and said, you've been smart and small. I need you to be big and dumb. Which meant, you know, think of big picture things and ask stupid questions. And it was completely along the lines you say, I love your point about libertarians. And there's in OMB Circular A4, something which, of course, everyone reads and arises uh OMB circular a4 there's a discussion of uh, having to explain the need for federal regulation and it's tempting sometimes for some people to say of course there's a need but if you have a burden of justification why is federal regulation necessary at all um often that's a really good question. Sometimes it's not, but it's always good to ask
1: it. Right. And, and then you get the the problem of all sorts of biases of, of, well, this is the way we've always done it. Or, you know, it's it's too unimaginable to think about getting rid of rent control because a whole systems are built around it, even though I think it's probably, at least in some places, a very good idea getting rid of rent control. Um, all right. So, I kept teasing that we were going to talk about the algorithm, you know, uh, and you obviously will be the high priest of the new religion of, of the algorithm. Uh, um, so can AI, um, either smart, either real AI or just, you know, better algorithms, um, can they replace judges? Should they replace judges? Where, where, where should we be? taking the humans out and putting the, the chips in.
0: Okay. So if the question is, is there a constitutional right to X, Y, or Z, I wouldn't want an algorithm to be in charge of that. Uh, for I hope obvious reasons. If the question is, is this person at risk of cancer? And what is the level of the risk? An algorithm should, I think, even now, uh, be a close advisor, if it's available, and potentially the decider. I say potentially because your point, it may be that the doctor knows something that the algorithm doesn't about this particular person, their background or history that's just not in the, what the algorithm's been trained on. But the, if we're talking about predictive judgments... Algorithms, the record is really strong in many domains. So I'm thinking of the heart disease paper, where you can just do much better in either saving money or in saving lives by relying on the algorithms judgment, so to speak, of whether someone should be tested more. But there's new data on the bail study, which I described, where the algorithm outperforms the judges, which finds that the very best judges outperform the algorithm. The top 10%, they do better. And I think they do better for your reason. That's the upshot of the paper. So This is not just a speculation. It's based on data. There are some things in the situation that the best judges will be alert to that the algorithm isn't. Now, it might be something about the person's family situation that maybe the algorithm isn't trained on, or it might be something about the interaction between the judge and the uh, defendant, which signals something to the judge, to your point about facial noticing stuff from faces, that the algorithm can't get access to. So for predictive
1: judgments,
0: I think we should say that there's a large domain in which we want the alg- We want to know what the algorithm says.
1: I mean, it's. I was just thinking, you know, the algorithm can't see when a defendant rolls his eyes at something, right? And like eye rolls can probably be wildly overinterpreted, but they're actually pretty telling in a lot of circumstances. You know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you've convened lots of meetings. And if you get a sense that one of the, interns is rolling their eyes at something that you're saying you're going to make a lot of judgments about that intern um and anyway uh i've read that maybe it was in the book uh you know that that radiologists that the that ai is is very rapidly becoming better at reading x-rays than um than human beings are and while I have friends who are radiologists, um, or married to radiologists that I would feel sorry for, like I, if the, if the computer's better at reading it, I'd want the computer. Um, and at the same time, in areas like criminal justice, I mean, we are, fortunately, I know you're a sci-fi geek, so I can, I can do this. We are inviting a butlerian jihad. If we all of a sudden start outsourcing, uh, serious questions about people's autonomy and and freedom to uh, computers. And I don't know that we are publicly ready to have that debate.
0: So there's a question of guilt or innocence, and uh, we're going to get there if we're not there, where algorithms are very good if you feed in lots of stuff to say whether the person did the thing. But it's a nice question what to do with that. It might be that the jury system isn't just about accuracy. It might be that it's about, uh, uh, let's say, human assessment that is not reducible to the accuracy question. I sat on a jury once, by the way, where, um, and I basically didn't say much because I'm a law professor, and I was afraid they'd give more weight to what I said than it's a, it's a funny story. So, so I didn't want to be on the jury, I confess, because it was an extremely inconvenient time. So when they asked me what I did, I said, I studied jury behavior, which, and uh, I thought, with 100% certainty, I thought that that would get me excluded. That was optimistic bias uh, in uh, evidence, they, they included me and Afterwards, the judge asked to see me after, as did the lawyers, because I studied jury behavior. They wanted to talk to me. And uh, the lawyers said they tried to exclude me, but the judge wouldn't let them, which is not, that's not good. That's not, I mean, it was good. I enjoyed it, learned from it, but that's not what's supposed to happen. The judge isn't supposed to say to the lawyers, you're not allowed to exclude the person. And I asked the judge, why didn't you allow them to exclude me. The judge said, you study jury behavior, I thought you should learn what it's like to be a juror. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, The, the jury I sat on, uh, came in with a verdict of innocence, for reasons which were associated with the reasonable doubt standard, but also embedded an assortment of moral judgments, that an algorithm may or may not be coded to make.
1: Right. I mean, the, the algorithm is not going to let the, gu- the apocryphal guy who steals a loaf of bread to feed his children. He's not going to treat that person any differently than the guy who steals a loaf of bread to sell it for, for pot or whatever, right? right?
0: So, so you might think the person did it, but they're extenuating circumstances and you'll kind of press hard on the reasonable doubt standard. And whether we want that in the system is fair, but we probably do.
1: So uh, I know we've gone to time, and and you've got you know a border crisis to solve, but um, I, I'm sure you get asked this more than almost anybody else. How nervous should we be about a, AI? Either in the sort of luddite sense, are they going to come from my cotton mill and start writing my columns for me, um, or more broadly, um, how concerned are you about the um, the dislocations? To society that that AI could cause. I mean, it seems like it's it's creeping up real fast on paralegals and those kinds of people, and uh, maybe even accountants. And um, you know, and if if they get truck drivers, uh, you could really see uh, some serious social upheaval. How, how do you think about it? How cons- you know? Are your biases towards uh, optimism or pessimism about all of
0: it? Let's go along three axes. Uh, Excitement about the potential of AI of making lives better and longer. So in so many domains, AI is increasing safety and health. Airplanes are really safe. One reason is that uh, computers are helping make choices and they know stuff. Uh, For medical practice, things are going to get much better and they already are better. Um, for goods and services, AI is going to be, and to some extent already, is a great boon. Um, for displacement of persons, I'm more worried than I was a year ago. Um, and chat, GPT, is one thing that is relatively new, and you can see that it is able to do things that are astounding. I've asked it questions about behavioral economics, and the answers are, pretty good they're you know they're not at the level quite of what the best people in the world would do but they're at the level of what good people would do and it happens like that certainly what good undergrad definitely i i asked one i've been asked to write a recommendation for someone for a secondary school and i asked one to i asked cb chat cbp gbt to, I can see I'm an English major and this is really English to me, I asked it to write a recommendation for someone for secondary school. And like that, it wrote a good one, one that would be usable. I won't use it, but I was stunned to see that it's usable. So displacement of persons, that's a concern. On the other hand, there have been displacements of persons that technology has produced throughout human history. And uh, consistent with our shared enthusiasm for markets, in the end, I'm hopeful that uh, there'll be adjustments and five people will have other jobs that will be great.
1: It's a longer conversation. I just worry about it is that the old displacements put push people towards more um, creative and mentally challenging work, and it seems to me that the the AI stuff goes after creative and mentally challenging work rather than physical labor in ways that we don't have a great precedent for. But at the same time, I want space elevators. So like, you know, we got to do what we got to do.
0: It's a terrific point. So I think we need a lot of thinking about this. And the fact that AI is now able to write essays, what do we do with that? It obviously uh, disorders a number of things, including people who that essay writing
1: all right uh dr cass sunstein um i don't know why i thought well, your last name was cast there for a second thank you so much for doing this again the book is noise a flaw in human judgment by daniel kahneman olivia olivier saboni and cass sunstein uh thanks so much for doing this great to see you and great to talk all right so professor sunstein has left the building and. Um, um, I find this stuff really, really fascinating and it raises all sorts of funky, scary, weird, interesting issues. Um, I should say that the book is really much like, um, Kahneman's thinking fast and thinking slow. I think that was the title. Um, I know numbers and psychology studies and all that kind of stuff sound like, um, it might be a hard slog to read, but it's incredibly clear and lucid writing and, um, uh, and if you're interested in this stuff, I, I, I highly recommend it. Um, what else? Uh, not too much else to report right now. Um, uh, we are, um, this is our last week with David French on board, which is sad, but, um, it is what it is. And, um, um, you know, and of course, obviously dead to me. Um, and, uh, I will be doing the, the, Solo remnant and um thanks everybody for listening. Again, apologies for the that beeping thing. Uh it was sort of unavoidable. Um and uh um it was probably actually was avoidable, but uh we couldn't figure out how to avoid it in real time. So uh apologies for that. I hope nobody um you know veered off the road checking their phone um when they were listening to this podcast because of those beeps. Um, and other than that. I'll see you next time.
0: No, you won't. This is a podcast.